Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I hope your day is going well, better than the way these earphones seem to be fitting my head today. And you know, I really don't do shout outs, but I'd like to give a shout out to all the people that are going through these floods and are going through this heat wave. Just hold on, my brothers and sisters, because joy comes in the morning. And let's call it like it is. We all know that the people of color will be the last one that FEMA get to. But that's all right because we also know that we are going to help each other. People, we just have to realize that the earth is trying to tell us something, and that is it is being abused. And we are the ones abusing it. We better wake up, because only when the last tree has been cut down, the last fish has been caught and the last stream poison will we realize we cannot eat money my friends let's slip on in the darkness and I'm going to tell you about three black men that were lynched in Minnesota The murders in Duluth offered yet another example that the North was no exception when it came to anti-black violence. It seems society had somewhat of a collective amnesia when it came to the horrors of June 15, 1920, when three black men were lynched by a white mob in Duluth. In the 1970s, when Michael Fetto began researching what would become the lynching in Duluth, the first detailed accounting of the night's events, he met resistance from whiteness who were still alive. All of them said, gee, why are you dredging this up again? All of them except the African-American community in Duluth. It was part of their oral history and all of those families knew of this event. Oral history. That means history that was passed down through word of mouth because there was nothing in the books to retell this story. It seems that on a late spring night a hundred years ago, a crowd estimated at 5,000 smashed their way into Duluth police station and seized six African-American men who had a been arrested in connection with the alleged crime of, yes, you know it, raping a white teenager. After somewhat of a mock trial, three of them, Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, and Isaac McGee, were convicted, and a crowd of men, women, and children cheered as they were beaten and lynched. It seemed later photos were sold as postcards, while the national press reported on the innocent with dismay. For seven decades, their bodies remained in an unmarked grave in a local cemetery until they were designated with proper markings in the early 1990s. 
accompanied by the words, deterred but not defeated. The site of their deaths is now the home of the Clayton Jackson McGee Memorial, both a standing tribute to the three men and the site of ongoing educational efforts. And it bears an inscription etched, an event has happened upon which it is difficult to speak and impossible to remain silent. The violence began when Irene Tuscan and her companion James Sullivan had rendezvoused at the traveling John Robinson Circus during its brief stop in Duluth. Now, what happened behind the circus tents that night will never be fully known. But the pair claimed later that a group of African-American laborers employed by the circus had held Sullivan at gunpoint and raped Tuscan. But according to newspaper reports and notes from a private investigator, the family physician who examined Tuscan said he found no evidence of the assault, nor had Tuscan mentioned to her parents that anything had happened when she got home that night. It was only after Sullivan had began working his overnight shift on the docks and spoke to his father that they began making police calls, culminating in the middle of the night arrests of six men and a handful of others who were pulled off of the circus train already bound for the next town and interrogated. The next day, which was the 15th, a local resident named Louis Dandino drove his truck up and down Duluth's Superior Street, inviting crowds to join the necktie party. As unverified rumors of Tuscan's rape spread, his ominous call became a bloodthirsty chorus. And we know that it doesn't take long for whiteness to turn into a raging mob when it has something to do with a person of color and their women. And that swelling mob, in the mood for vengeance, descended upon the city's police station. With the crowd growing louder and louder in the hours leading up to their deaths, the men trapped in their cells undoubtedly understood the horror that awaited. By approximately 9.30 p.m., the white rioters throwing bricks and smashing the walls overcame the undermanned police presence. Those officers left to contend with the crowd tried desperately to stave them off with water hose, as their leadership had ordered them not to fire their weapons on the rioters. In the final moments before the lynching, some tried to reason with the crowd. Two judges arrived to plead the case for the law to take its course, but to no avail. A local Catholic priest climbed the post himself. In the name of God and the church I represent, I ask you to stop. But it fell on deep ears amid the dying of rallying cries, which by then included false reports of Tuscan's death. Duluth's white population readily accepted the rape allegation and were eager to condemn the African-American prisoners. It wasn't as if 
Duluth was dealing with a small group of people who were a minority in a society. The mob of Duluth was made up of all classes, mothers taking their kids. The three victims themselves barely reached adulthood. And the pleas of innocence from McGee, the first to be lynched, did nothing to dissuade the mob. Witnesses later recalled the second man, Jackson, coolly throwing a pair of dice from his pocket on the ground with the words, I won't need these anymore in this world. Clayton was killed last, pleading for his life as he too was subject to the merciless taunts and blows in his last moments. After their murders, the perpetrators made no attempt to conceal their involvement. Posing proudly for photographs and speaking openly with reporters at the scene, people were willing and happy and crowding in, people standing on their tiptoes leaning in. They wanted to be recorded as part of this awful thing. News of the lynching made headlines around the country. Other Minnesotians voiced a sense of disbelief that the reproach of the South, as the Minneapolis Journal described it, could so easily happen in a northern state, placing an irremovable stain on the name of Minnesota. The gruesome killings defied their widely held sense of identity. In contrast of the violence that plagued African Americans in the South, the North viewed itself as a separate and more superior region. It wasn't just Minnesota, although Minnesota was right up at the top in terms of a sense of exceptionalism. When faced with increasing tensions, the impulse to be unexceptional set in. Those tensions stemmed in part from resentment towards Duluth, comparatively small African-American population, comprising less than 500 out of 100,000. United States Steel, a major employer in Duluth, was hiring black workers at lower wages at a time when black World War I veterans returning from Europe felt entitled to have those jobs with better pay. But you see, my friends, Duluth issues reflected broader national turmoil. The previous year, racial violence broke out across American cities, including Chicago, where 38 people died in what is known as the Red Summer. In those spasms of violence, two forces converged, the return of white veterans who needed jobs and black veterans who hoped their service would translate to more rights and the movement of large African-Americans to northern cities where they were often viewed as a threat to these jobs. Alluding to violence that had gripped other Midwestern cities, including its own, the Chicago Tribune added, Duluth has now joined the American cities which have discovered how easily the safeguards of civilized justice can be leaped. 
The editorial went on to exhort the city to do better in dealing with the men who have brought a stain to Duluth's good name. City and state levels attempted to reckon with what happened that night, despite a sense of unease among the city's African-American residents. Activists formed a new NAACP chapter to assist in the aftermath. Governor Joseph Bernquist, himself president of the NAACP's branch in St. Paul, commissioned an investigation by Adjutant General Walter Rhino of the Minnesota National Guard, which had been brought in to prevent further violence after the inadequate response of local law enforcement. Reinhold leveled sharp criticism at Duluth's Public Safety Commissioner, William Murren, who had given the order to police not to fire their weapons out of an overriding concern for spilling the blood of white rioters. A series of legal proceedings in the ensuing months seemingly shared the goal of expunging the unpleasant episode with symbolic convictions. Same old story, my friends. Despite the multiple indictments, no one was convicted of murdering McGee, Jackson, and Clayton. Three from the mob, including Louis Dondino, served relatively short sentences for rioting. Two of the African-American men who had been arrested in connection with Tuscan's allegations, William Miller and Max Mason, stood trial for the alleged rape. A vigorous defense funded by the NAACP helped secure Miller's acquittal. Mason was convicted and sent to prison based in part on a vague physical description provided by Tuscan. Among those who spoke about this tragic episode in Duluth history is Irene Tuscan's great-nephew, Mike Tuscan, who is currently Duluth's chief of police. When you see people who are being oppressed, when you see inequalities, when you see prejudice, it is our opportunity to stand up and challenge that, Tuscan said at a memorial the event in 2016. While the tragedy has been thrown into stark relief in 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic forced the postponement of a large ceremony planned for the centennial anniversary of the lynching. As cities across the nation grapple with the role of racism in their own histories, organizers in Duluth are looking forward to next year to bring a crowd of thousands to the same street corner to symbolically match or exceed the one that gathered on June 15, 1920. This time to honor the three men whose lives were cut short on a warm spring night a hundred years ago. So rest in peace, my brothers. Although we are not in Minnesota, we are all the way across the country in Arizona. Your story is being told here. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that it lives on in the voices of our people forever and a day. Because your story is history. And it is not only African-American history, it is American history. The history 
that American society does not want told. My friends, we both know what that music means. But before I go, I must leave you with these words from my man, Malcolm. White societies now wages a war against us that most black people can't see. In this war, they constantly spread false black racially demoralizing propaganda through the media. This tactic is designed to divide us, make us self-hating in order to make us easier to control. They also spread false propaganda to criminalize us. This tactic is used to make their mistreatment of us appear as always justifiable. Have a great day, my friends. And remember, it's been my honor.